This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and to the Gadigal people from whose land we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we're going to talk about broadening our democracy. Some call it horizontal democracy and to cut through the groupthink of our big political parties. Now we have citizens' assemblies and we'll hear later from Sonia Randawa what the process is. But first, I want to start with the results. Um, in 2020, the French Citizens Commission for Climate had nearly all its 149 recommendations accepted by President Macron. And with me from Paris, I have Madame Amandine Rogman, who is the chair of International European Organization set up by the citizens to implement these recommendations. Could I first express to you my great sorrow at the resurgence of COVID in, and the new wave of deaths in Europe? And also, I just read about the uh, Tempête Alex in the south, the big storm that swept away a lot of houses and uh, roads. And it's really one of the examples of climate change. So I'm very sorry to hear this is happening in your country. How, how are you feeling? Thank you for your concern about the situation in France. And, um, but I have to admit that it's a difficult time for everybody right now. The COVID situation is a worldwide situation. So, and also um, natural uh, catastrophes like uh, the, the, the one you were talking about is, uh, is of course something. But I know uh, in Australia, you, you also had some difficult uh, times in the past few months so um, yes. so no the, the situation is complicated right now and uh, having the chance and uh, to to leave such uh, an experience talking about the citizen assembly for climate is something that has given me uh, some hope to, yes. to face uh, the citizen current situation also and to to think that we can make things move on COVID recovery restarting of your economy looks to me like it has already adopted some of the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly. Is that true? Yeah, actually, the France uh, recovery plan is about uh, 100 billion euro, and one third of it is supposed to be dedicated to climate measures. So what has been the greatest result so far? First, one of the first success that uh, was the, the, the mediatic attention that we got, because for years we've been talking about climate change but most of the time it was a subject that was uh, the one of the scientists and yeah. not the everyday people were were feeling concerned about it but i think in france with this uh, citizen assembly and also the covid situation that made people really think about the the, the environment they were living in and what they, they wanted for the future there was a very good time and a very good context for people and those subjects to get down in the society. And that was thanks also to the media treatment that we got because 
not today, still today, the, the, the French press and also international press, like and even international radios like you, mm-hmm. are talking about this. I have the feeling that people around me and in the society, they feel concerned right now. And then talking about political and effective success on the, the proposals and the way they are implemented or not, it's a bit early to talk about this. Like, for example, I think there are some stuff that friends can move on alone and be an example for the yes. other countries and the yes. other uh, members. Uh, we are thinking right now about implementing a penalty system on the vehicle's weight. So the, the French government uh, uh, took this proposal from our report, but there is a, a slight difference. We, we had advised to, to punish, uh, to, to, to have the penalty system for the cars and the vehicle that are more than 1,400 1, uh, kilos, and the government decided to put uh, the limit at war, meaning uh, 1,800 kilos. So it's a, it's a great example to show, I think it's half of a success. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. The idea was, the idea is working and is doing its past in the society and in the political field also. But uh, I think the, the effort is still not uh, sufficient and us to be, to be bigger. The key question was how can we reduce emissions by at least 40% by 2030? Well, that's a decade, not, not a big time. And I think in Australia, we, our ambition is only 26% <laughs> decrease. That's, all we, that's the small ambition we have. But you also in, in wanted to have social justice. And I wanted to know what areas did the citizens think would be easiest to achieve you know what's the low-hanging fruit as we say the social justice spirit was really important because as you might know we, we were just ending a very social trouble time in france with the yellow jackets that uh, were demonstrating in the streets for months and all of this started because they refused to pay a tax on energy for uh, their cars this was really present to our mind and and um, some of the 150 people had been part of the yellow jackets and they had been in the street to demonstrate about that and and so it was very accurate for us and maybe what was the most obvious was the education first you need to know you need to have access to simple and uh, synthesized information yes. for people in their everyday life so, so they know and they feel concerned about it. We, we were not trying to say it's only for the future or yeah. the next generation will have the power to change everything. No, your everyday life when you consume also like we, we had this uh, proposal I'm very attached to because I worked on to display the carbon impact of products and services, for example. And so that for us was obvious. For example, in Europe, we use a, an application that is called Yuka. I don't know if you in Australia have heard of it. It's something that you have on your smartphone when you go to the supermarket or, or yeah. everything. And you scan products and it's telling you if it's good or bad on a scale to one to, of, of one to five. You said, why can't we have that for carbon, actually? Yeah. And, to know, and to know our uh, product or a mm-hmm. service is... Uh, it's all about getting aware, you know, getting yes. aware and... 
and making people also feel actors, <coughs> feel actor of their of their of their own life. So this was one of the first thing: education, information, the need for information. Right now, I'm not saying that we don't have the information, but maybe we have too much information. That's and, right. And people don't find themselves in it and don't don't know where to look at or sometimes they're misinformed also and saying, for example, that it's more expensive for them to have a, a not carbon uh, food. Yeah. So in education, what I think the first and the, the base on which we all agree. Oh, yes. And making the information easy. For example, I'm a bit older. I, I go to the supermarket. I have to put my glasses on to read the tiny writing. If you just had a, a phone app like that, oh, Bing, that's a very high carbon product. I won't have that one. You know, I'll get the next one. That would make life so much easier. And as you say, people would be actively engaged in doing that but this brings us to the subject of consumerism and advertising and i believe the citizens did discuss you know banning some sort of advertising but what about using advertising for the education of people about this you know using advertising differently is there some way that you discussed about mandating some different use of advertising so that they can't exploit people because we have a terrible problem of um, advertising making us want things <laughs> we don't need them yes uh, actually the the proposal that we made is not about banning all form of advertising it's about making uh, advertising more conscious and and more i don't know maybe more ethic yes uh, also and for example, you have also now a new generation, of course, that is coming on the market. And it's all about hydrogen, electricity. So I'm not saying, and we are not saying with the, the citizen assemblies that you should not do advertising on those cards, but on the contrary, that you should do more and only advertising on those, on those cars. So um, it's really, it's a, it's a complicated debate on where do you put the, the, um, the frontier? What do you forbid and what do you encourage? For example, we, we have um, in, in the proposal, we have uh, some, uh, some words for saying we need some more public advertisements with, with uh, education messages. Yes. Like you yes. have one, would you need another one? You know, yes. kind of uh, this kind of mention to, to yeah. make you think about uh, consuming in another way. We have a law in France that was one of the, the inspirations uh, for this proposal, a law that is on um, tobacco and alcohol. As we succeeded to do it once for a special industry, we think that right now we can implement this. During the quarantine, we, all out, we, we had to, to, to work online and to work by, on, on Visio, and we had old people that were not really... Mm. comfortable with uh, the internet and with mm. the, the screens and yes so it's how do you keep them involved and and that everybody feels at the same level right now so i was talking about the whatsapp groups but we also have a slack platform i don't know if you know slack which is a collaborative tools and we created that between some citizens and some citizens are, are doing um uh, monitoring to the older one that don't know how to use it to, so they can get on the slack uh, platform you know so those, those are little examples but they're they're i think meaningful on the link uh, about the link that we have all together 
Oh, but how good is that compared to being a citizen who sits at home and watches Parliament on TV and votes every few years and doesn't know, you know, you're only hearing what the media tell you. That's why we say that, that's why I say we are lucky. And I Very know lucky. that. So I yeah. wish it can be a, a broader experience for most yeah. citizens, actually. Yeah. To give a concrete example, there is this, this person, Melanie. She's a, she's a French woman about 40, 40 years old. Uh, she she um, was elected as the mayor of her village during the citizen uh, assembly for climate. And so she had a very concrete uh, role right now because at the scale of her village, she can improve uh, the, the climate situation and, and, uh, and involve the citizens of her village on climate change. So that's really cool because she was not really into politics before that <laughs> and not really into being a mayor. And right now she's also running for the regional uh, elections in France. So I don't know, she's, she might be starting a political career, which is really cool because she has something to fight for and living this citizen experience for her was I think really striking and made her change her life actually so in the in the way she feels committed to this and to help the others and to to be an active citizen to be to be a very active citizen what what is more active than having those responsibilities of a mayor or of a, of a local political uh, person. So, so she, she's a good example. But there are so, so many others. Like, uh, you know, we've all been transformed by it. So. I asked Amandine if the 150 people who participated in the Citizens' Assembly for Climate had the ear of the government now. We have a very uh, special relation and privileged uh, relation to the government and some uh, ministers. So the first ministry is is often uh, talking to us about how things are uh, moving. Also, yeah. the ministry in charge of the uh, ecologic transition is the one following with us the new law on the citizens' uh, climate assembly. It's an ongoing dialogue. I think for them, we are at the same time something difficult they have to deal with now because we have all this public attention and I think we can put some pressure on them. I'm I'm aware of that and and because we published that letter and the day after we had the answer of the president. So when you have, I think, this kind of dialogue and and also of publicity because everybody knew about it and and it was public, all of this, it's, it's a kind of of citizen pressure for me we have now so so we are working hands in hands and the dialogue is still is still important it's not like a confrontation i would say with the government but at the same time being very vigilant and and very careful well i think that's very good because it's like an inside pressure it's a monitoring group and you're but you're inside you have their confidence they financed it they ask you to do this work so that's terrific but outside you're right in the first place they are the one that came came to to us and said we want you to do this so that that was part of the of the letter we did it's saying like we didn't ask for anything in the first place you came (laughs) and and you picked us up actually so don't forget (laughs) about it but meanwhile, there are other groups outside, for example, Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion and climate groups all through Europe. I'm interviewing tomorrow someone about degrowth, you know, about 
yep. circular economy and degrowth and just really cutting back, cutting back in the rich countries, cutting back our consumption and our production. So how is that going? In you know, you're a young person, so as you said, you um, how how are you feeling that's happening in France or more broadly in Europe? The, you know, the criticism of this, this is one process, this is so enlightening for me to hear about, it's very good advance in democracy, but outside that there's still much more radical ideas. What, what, what's your feeling about that? The climate assembly is independent, independent from the government, but also independent from the organization like Greenpeace and all, because they have been doing an amazing job in the past few years and we are not saying like we come and it's tabula rasa, you know, you start from <laughs> zero and we are reinventing everything. It's not what we are saying. We, we are taking part of their work, but we are also creating our own voice and which is not activist and activism. We, we are citizens. Some of us on a very personal level can uh, get involved in those organizations and there is no problem with that. And some already have, you know. I'm not denying what they are doing and what they have been doing. And I think all of this is complementary, actually. The position that we defend is a position of complementarity. Everybody has a job to do and has his own position. And we are all legitimate so I think Greenpeace and all have to continue on doing so because this is what makes things move. Cyril Dion, Mathilde Mer, uh, they, they were part of the, of the yellow jackets for climate and they were very closed also from all this activism uh, culture. Mm -hmm. So they were the first to, to, to add the ID of the Citizen Assembly and to propose uh, and to ask uh, Macron, President Macron, about it. Uh, just to finish, I think one, one of the words I saw in uh, all the things I read about was this is the hope for this. It's like an enlightenment. You know, we had the enlightenment and this is uh, an enlightenment of our democracy, isn't it? To bring in more voices like this and to bring in voices, as you say, who consider themselves citizens, not pressure groups, really. They're not activists. They have a right and a responsibility to actually inform themselves and give this witness to the to the government. It's a different relationship. And I, I just think it's wonderful that you've told us all about that. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Amandine Rogman in Paris and about the French Citizens Assembly and what it really means to be a proper citizen. Thank you, Amandine. Thank You're you. welcome. World Wildlife Fund Australia has launched a bushfire regeneration challenge. The challenge will deploy $1 million into innovative solutions to safeguard and restore landscapes in key fire affected areas. We're looking for both proof of concepts and innovative solutions that are ready for scaling, that have the potential to push boundaries and achieve a brighter future for people and nature. Head to impactio.global forward slash challenges to find out more. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show at 3CR in Melbourne and Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Would you be surprised to know that citizens' assemblies have been tried dozens of times in Australia? Well, I was. And thank you to Rima Rattan from 3CR for interviewing our next guest, Sonia Randawa. She finds out that even when citizens disagree with the outcome, they are ambassadors for the process of citizens' assemblies. Their trust in democracy is increased if their recommendations are taken seriously. 
And Sonia Randara is with a group called The Coalition of Everyone that believes in disrupting the politics of fear and building the politics of hope. How did the Coalition of Everyone start? So we actually started off through Extinction Rebellion. We all met through Extinction Rebellion, but we felt that we needed to have a much broader conversation about democracy and the way in which our electoral system is failing us at the moment. We have a system which encourages people to be very passive about the democratic experience and which is certainly not fit for the crises that we're facing. It was the bushfire crisis in January, we've had COVID since then, and there's no long-term planning about how to tackle crises coming into the future. Another thing I noticed on your website is that you start with the idea that democracy is in decline. Could you explain that a little bit? So there's been a number of surveys. I mean, Freedom House is probably the most famous international survey that's done on the health of democracies. And it looks at various factors, including the participatory nature, funding of political parties, media freedom. And they have been tracking this since at least 2006. So that's more than 10 years now. And their trends seem to show that along various factors, democracy is in decline. I remember a couple of years ago where Malaysia seemed to be the bright spark, which is where I'm from originally. And if you have any idea of what's been happening there, even in what was the bright spark in the Asia Pacific region, we've seen a sort of soft coup happening earlier this year. It wasn't a military coup, but it was a take the elected government was take the too many MPs jumped ship. And since then, things have gone from bad to worse in terms of the electoral system in Malaysia. So I think that even in the few places that were seen as bright sparks a couple of years ago, we can see that democracy is facing major challenges and hurdles. I think one of the things that becomes sort of clear over the last couple of years is how fragile democracy is, you know, that that we sort of think the institutions are very strong, but you, you can just, how easily they're disrupted because so much of the behavior is customary rather than mandated. And I think it's also um, any system which concentrates a lot of power at the top of it is going to be fragile because we've got a system where the rewards to bad behavior are really high. And there are very few mechanisms to ensure that the individuals who are elected are actually responsive to the grassroots. I know that on 3CR, there are other shows which talk a lot about, for example, the right to recall your elected representatives. We believe in going one step further and saying, well, why do we actually need elected representatives? Why can't we have selected representatives that gives everybody a much greater chance to be part of the governance of the nation. So how does it work? You you convene citizens' assemblies, so and you've just mentioned, you know, selected representatives. So how could you explain how that works? So we're talking about with that a sortition based system. So the idea is that everyone's hat or everyone's address goes into a imagine a huge, huge hat, right? And you pick out names and from those names you want to choose half of the people that you're choosing. So let's say it's 150 representatives. You'd want to have 75 that were male and 75 female. You'd want to have people from across the country. You'd want to have a representative sample of rural participants. You'd want to have people represented along grounds of ethnicity and socioeconomic status so that you'd have a much more diverse group of people and a much more representative group of people who were making decisions in the legislative chamber 
rather than a group that tends to be more privileged, better educated, richer, whiter, and more male, and older as well. I don't think it's by chance that it's, it's taken such a long time for climate action to be on the radar of almost any electoral democracy, because it's generally older men that tend to sit in um, elected democratic systems. So what issues are you concerned with? So what we're really interested in is the democratic system. So as Coalition of Everyone, we've been working on assemblies on things such as youth engagement and employment within migrant communities, We've done primarily stuff connected to the climate and ecological crises, but we're more interested in developing the tools of participatory and deliberative democracy rather than the issues involved. We think that bringing people together in a deliberative fashion helps to build community and build understandings across divides, which are often seen as insurmountable. The more contact that people have, the more that they talk together, the more likely they are, and this is proven through research that started in the 1960s, the more likely they are to be able to come to compromise and solutions rather than increasing the division and debate between them. Where, if any, have you held them in Australia? We're involved in a citizens' assembly in Moreland, which is taking place with, through, it's a very small one. The registration is currently open as we speak, and that's going to be on building back better and what council should be doing in order to address the challenges thrown up by COVID. And it's being run by the a local climate action group, Neighbours United for Climate Action, and the neighbourhood houses, as well as Coalition of Everyone, and the Sortition Foundation are providing the selection services. That's the only one that we've been directly, that we are currently directly involved in running. But Australia has had more than 40 of these sorts of processes in the past. The first one that I'm aware of was in 2009, which was run by the New Democracy Foundation. And that was a nationwide one on Australia's democratic system. There's some really good uh, videos from it and things uh, available online. One of the most sort of heartwarming things is that the youngest participant entered into the deliberative process really unsure, didn't feel she knew anything. By the time that she finished the sort of like exit interview, if you like, she wanted to be Prime Minister of Australia. And just that level of empowerment from going in and coming out, I think I find it really inspiring and I don't think it's an anomaly. You find that with a lot of the ways in which respondents change throughout the process and by the process. I read that you've held a few in Victoria already. We've held mock citizen. We demonstrated the process of sortition of how you actually choose the participants and how you make sure that it's demographically stratified and then we had the deliberative process informed by experts. But they were very short, they were two hour long events and they weren't genuinely randomly selected because people self-selected to come in the room. So they were very different from a real citizens assembly. But this one in Moreland will be the first actual one that we're doing. You've got the proof of concept now and you're building tools. Are the tools for anyone to use or is it something that is it something they have to consult you on? What, what happens once you've got the toolkit? No, we we want as many people as possible to take the tools and run with them. I mean, we're happy to help people to develop them. We're trying to develop materials. So, for example, we are trying to work with schools. Obviously, we'd started earlier in the year and then COVID happened and schools have been facing a series of challenges since then. But we've started negotiating with schools again. 
to try and develop a curriculum which we want to turn into a sort of curriculum in a box for running and holding citizens assemblies in schools and our, our aim is to just is to try and change the way we think about and live democracy rather than that we want to hold on tight to our own ideas and keep them close to our chest. So how do people how do people find the tools you're developing and, and what do they do to access them? So at the moment there's they can look at our website. There isn't a huge map up there at the moment. Um, and at the moment it really is get in touch with us and let's see if we can work together because we're, I mean, we started off as three people. We now have nine people. We're all volunteers. Um, so, you know, it's not as though we have a huge amount of resources um, behind us at the moment. Get in touch and we can help to develop them with you for the problems that you're facing. And hopefully we'll be able to get the documentation and things online at some point so that people will be able to go to the website and download the experience and the tools and things that they need to develop them within their own communities. One of my misgivings, I suppose, with climate action or climate activism is that it often takes place within cities, within progressive suburbs, more and more think tanks. And you kind of think, well, is this what we need? It's sort of another city-based think tank, another group based in the city with middle-class white kids sort of running it. How would you respond to that? How do you intend to, I suppose, counter that? I mean, the whole point of the I, the process is that they're things that happen within communities. And so it has to be based within the places themselves. Now, we aren't going to go and tell people. We're hoping that, and it has already happened, people will approach us wanting to bring the tools into their community. So we've already started discussions with groups in the Latrobe Valley. We ran a people's assembly in the Hunter Valley with BZE. And we're also, we've been talking to people in Castle, Maine, We've been talking. So at the moment, there, which isn't exactly outside the climate activism bubble, I know, in Castlemaine, but we are trying to spread them as through those sorts of outreach activities. We had hoped, um, the plan was that by this time this year, we would be doing a roadshow across Australia. We'd have some funding behind us to do that. Obviously, again, there's been a huge problem in the terms of the ability to deliver that, um, given uh, the travel restrictions. So we've been doing as much as we can. They're not just about climate. So things like when we look at the communities that were affected by bushfires, one of the things that was powerful about the post-bushfire thing is the way that communities came together. And I, that's what this tool is about. It's about people coming together and driving change themselves within their communities. So I don't think that that's a particularly urban or elite idea. I think in many ways it's the opposite. What are some of the problems with citizens' assemblies? In terms of the issues, one problem is when there is a lack of commitment from the body that commissions them. And the biggest and worst example of this has got to be the South Australian Citizens' Jury on Nuclear Waste, where the government apparently went into the process assuming that a citizen's jury would rubber stamp what they wanted to happen, which was a place where they could put the nuclear waste. Two thirds of the people within the citizen's jury completely rejected the nuclear waste dump. They felt very passionate about it. They were, if you actually read the transcripts, the indignance of the voices comes through about the lack of respect for traditional owners, the lack of respect for future generations, the assumption that money would trump safety and security. And it was earlier this year that the South Australian government announced where they were going to site the nuclear waste dump. Um, so they completely ignored 
the recommendations that came out of the fairly costly citizens jury process. What that does is it undermines the legitimacy of the South Australian government in some ways. They are rejecting the voices of the people and the processes that they've set up in order to hear those voices. And I worry about how it undermines faith in the idea of democracy um, itself. Um, and that's something which I am very concerned about and have been for quite some time personally. Other problems are the ways, and there are. there's a lot of, this is a sort of burgeoning area of research in academia, is how do you try and ensure that people who are already marginalized don't feel further marginalized within the process? So things like, for example, um, if you shift the way in which experts address the panel, the jury, the assembly from a sort of giving of information style to a storytelling style, it means that women and um, minorities are more likely to um, interact with that information and feel empowered by the style in which it's been delivered. Whereas if it's given in this sort of the, the sort of like, I am the expert telling you the truth kind of way, then you, it tends, you don't get as many women um, or people from ethnic minorities that interact with it in quite the same way. But as I say, there's a lot of research being done and it's, it's improving constantly. So the ways in which you can try and ensure that there is that more level playing field. And, it, I, I, and if you compare it to the existing systems, it's just worlds beyond. There's also been research in Scotland, which I think is really exciting, about how to ensure people with mental disabilities are able to participate fully in these sorts of processes as well. So there's a lot of, as I say, exciting research on ensuring that the barriers to participation are as low as possible. Researching for this, I felt like there were two things happening when when you hold a citizens' assembly. On the one hand, you are giving people information and that, that information might, and there's a result, usually a report, and that might or might not be taken up by the government, um, as, you know, as you noted the case in South Australia. But the other thing that's happening is that you're empowering people with information and there's going to be some sort of a, a ripple effect within the within a sort of circle once they're back in the community, isn't there? And it seems like it's worthwhile holding them anyway for that reason. Indeed. And I think that there are two things about it, that side of things for me. They Often you find that, first of all, people who've participated in these processes become ambassadors for the processes themselves. The second thing is that you find that even people who disagree with the outcome will act as ambassadors for the decision taken by the assembly because of the, their belief in the legitimacy of the process. And that was something that came across in the Republic of Ireland on the abortion issue, where even people who were opposed to the repeal of Article 8 on abortion still suggested that the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly be accepted because of their trust in the process. And I think that's a really strong outcome as well. Thank you to Rima for showing us how citizens' assemblies are reviving our civic muscles all around Australia. And now we're going to Hungary. Vincent Liège is a French engineer, but he fell in love with Hungary 20 years ago. And he's just written a book with Anitra Nelson called Exploring Degrowth by Pluto Press.
His message is for our civilization to slow down, to stop living in the imperial mode, to get more people involved in our democracy. And the degrowth movement is promoting alternatives to a, our current unsustainable global economic model. It's disastrous for our climate and it's creating misery for people on the front lines. Welcome, Vincent. And would you like to tell us what you think of this historic Citizens' Assembly on Climate Change just finished in France this year? So thanks, Vivian, for your invitation. I think uh, if I may do a type of storytelling about what's happened, you, you will have a good uh, a good view about my point and what I think about this assembly. So it started with a very violently repressed, uh, maybe the biggest for a very long time social movement in France called the Yellow West. And it's a bit interesting what's happened because the Yellow West people started to go to the street to um, uh, express how they found, they found unfair uh, so-called ecological tax, which was targeting mostly uh, poor people living in the countryside. It was to increase uh, how much you have to pay for your gasoline for your car. Mm. And it started like that. And uh, it was, as I said, incredibly uh, violently repressed. I mean, you should check the Amnesty International reports about what happened in France. People died. Uh, tens of people lo lost a hand or feet. Uh, some lost uh, eyes and so on. The strategy applied by Macron administration was terrorized by uh, uh, a type of things which is somehow a tradition in this type of uh, insurrection mm. and they applied a tragedy which uh, a strategy which was to make the people so much afraid that you don't go anymore to demonstrate and to try to find a solution different attempt to implement type of dialogue between the yellow vest and the rest of society between the government and other parties and so on as the violence started to escalate um, a lot of ideas emerged and one of that idea was to um, implement with the convention, the citizen convention for ecological transition. And 150 people were chosen uh, uh, randomly. And in the beginning, it's very interesting, uh, in particular among some of my degrowth friends and green friends or so-called progressive friends, leftists and so on. Uh, but even more on the right side, everybody started to mock this initiative. How, I quote, how a <laughs> bunch of idiots uh, chosen randomly, would be able to solve problems we've been unable to solve for decades with the best experts and so on. And to be honest, they end up with 149 proposals, which are interacted with each other and really constitute a smart, meaningful, consequent project for transition, which is also radically questioning our economic model, our ultra-liberal capitalist economic model, which is questioning culture, which is questioning democracy. They even propose to change the constitution and our relationship to one nature and so on. So the result is amazing. And again, they didn't have the best condition to work. So this bunch of idiots, as some of my <laughs> friends, but mostly the rising people call them, in the beginning, uh, could take the smartest decision we could have seen in the public debates in France in one of the in the last 20 years since we started to speak about climate change, biodiversity loss, and all this type of challenge that we have to deal with. I really believe that uh, it never happened in such a high level. I mean, a, a nation state like France, moreover, and I'm not a nationalist at all, I'm very critical with my country, but it has a particular history, I think, uh, toward the construction of our uh, modern uh, 
um, liberal democracies and so on. And it shows that what we constructed with only the vote reached totalitarian limits. And you can start to be creative and invent new ways to practice politics, new types of political institutions, which doesn't mean that you have necessarily to uh, destroy or to reject representative democracy, but definitely representative democracy should go as well with other type of processes with much more participation. So that's why we could see in this uh, fantastic experience and, and it was uh, very fascinating to follow it. And it was very fascinating also to see all the people who were first skeptical or even demonized the experience were for the left, progressive, green, so all my friends and so on were very enthusiastic about the results. So they forgot that they were skeptical in the beginning or they supported it. And for the right wing, they started to panic. They said, if we bring even more uh, democracy, they will totally change the system and we will have a system which is really going uh, toward more social and environmental justice. Thank you. <laughs> That's a fantastic introduction. I like the way all the so all sorts of people were included. You, you, what these people called idiots, but it was such a good cross section of the whole society. And because you mentioned the uh, yellow vests, I looked this up. President Macron previously made a lot of mistakes, I think, in giving the fuel tax on top of a lot of benefits to the wealthy class. You know, there were all these tax breaks for them at the same time. So one of the slogan from the red, yellow vest that I liked was someone who said, you are concerned about the end of the world, you know, to Macron, but we are concerned about the end of the month. And yep. uh, I want to know how the Citizens' Assembly, how did it open up a new channel to communicate with power? Because that's what I think is problem with climate action. We cannot communicate with people in power. They're in a kind of locked fortress. We don't have this open channel. So how has this Citizens' Assembly given us a model for talking to them? If I may do, uh, I would be quite harsh against Macron. It's starting very late with no political party, but very strong support from the French oligarchy, which, which is dominating most of the, of the mass medias. It became a bit the last chance for the dominant system to avoid the emergence of left, green, progressive political movements, and also to play with this type of narrative that if it's not us, you're going to get the fascists. And Macron, with a very small support, with a very weak team, uh, managed to win the presidential election. And France is a, is the type of Republican monarchy, or monarchical uh, <laughs> republics. So he ended up with a very, very strong power. And in his political imaginary, Macron is a guy of the former century. Uh, even if he's younger, even if he pretended that he will reform France, he will bring something else and so on, he's, really, he's even more reactionary, I think, than Sarkozy. So everything is driven by what the big data is telling him. Oh, French people are interested in environment, so I have to make a declaration about that. And it was the same after the Yellow West movement, where he really panicked. Like, he saw that his life is under danger. He started to realize that this bunch of idiots, what we wanted to push towards the fascists, we wanted to, uh, to turn the countryside people against uh, the city center people who are much more green, who are much more interested in in degrowth, in radical critics to the system, much more social and environmental justice. He wanted to push with people what he saw that less educated and don't understand these problems. He wanted to push them to the fascists to reinforce this narrative that, look, fascism is rising up, 
left greens are not strong enough, so you should defend this hyper uh, center movement and so on. And when the proposal emerged uh, to create this convention, I think Macron saw that it's just a bunch of failure to even make a sabotage, and they will just propose stupid things like uh, poor people, from his view, from his oligarchic view, poor people just want to live like the rich people, poor people just want to get uh, bigger uh, TV screens, just want to get a bigger SUV and so on. That's what we tell them all day long in financing advertisements. So if we make them speak uh, about climate change, they won't understand anything and they will just propose stupid things. We will keep some of the stupid <laughs> things and that's all. The, the group of 150 citizens said they would be happy to live with less. After nine months of hearing all the evidence, they said we would actually be happy to take a cut in our living. It's so serious, we understand now, we would be happy to live with less. I found that surprising. Does it surprise you? It doesn't surprise me at all because um, we could observe already a lot of converging service studies, uh, sociological analysis in the last um, uh, years showing that people are more and more uh, in the direction of uh, what we call degrowth. So a radical transformation of our political uh, institution and economic system, not to always run for consuming more stuff that you don't really need, but on the contrary, to uh, consume less but better and to have much more time for meaningful activities. So we already could observe that. We could observe also uh, behavior changes and so on. But I would say if you look at history of civilization, we never seen demonstrations uh, of indigenous people going to the street and asking for 5G or for SUV. And this citizen convention is one more evidence showing that the people on the contrary to what we try to impose to them through advertisement and mass media, on the contrary to the mainstream dominant narrative that poor are stupid, they just want to drink more, just want to consume more and so on. It was one more evidence that the people are usually much more uh, responsible than the technocrats and the oligarchy, which is dominating our society. One of the things that citizens said in the first part of it, they said, if we do not make up for lost time, many regions of the world will become uninhabitable. And we know this in Australia. It's very real to us here with the last year's bushfires and drought. Um, uninhabitable, so it's serious. And I want to know from your research, what do you think there would be new ways of producing and consuming to reduce emissions 40% by 2030, especially in the rich countries? In front, it had a quite a strong impact to see these pictures of people trying to save themselves being on the beach, like uh, these pictures also with animals and, and so on. And if you don't want to, to see these pictures arriving every year, everywhere, all around the world, we need to open a very uh, radical political debate about what's really happening right now. And I think what's happened with the Citizen Convention and what we need right now is to reinforce our democracies. Uh, when I say that, uh, I often say I used to be uh, uh, the manager of a big train station in Paris and I was in, in charge of uh, uh, the train security. And it was uh, me and my colleagues who had to manage the train station was it was like a train accident or somebody falls from a train or commit suicide and this type of things. And what I learned, and I was very young when I got these responsibilities and it's a tough job, but what I learned uh, from my 
and early colleagues f full of wisdom and experience that when you face a catastrophe, what you have to do first is to slow down, to think. And uh, first time I was in charge and there was a catastrophe, uh, my colleague told me, what do you do now? And I said, oh, I should call this person, I should do that, I should run here. And so I said, no, no, you take a coffee and a cigarette and just stop all your phones for five minutes. And I said, it's totally stupid. And I think with climate change is what we have to do. And maybe the COVID-19 and the lockdown and the confinement could be an opportunity to go even further in this process where people started to understand what really matters. And I think more than ever, we should slow down our societies, our civilization, where we are like the hamster in the wheel, running always quicker and quicker to produce more things what we don't really need and so on. And we never have time to really question ourselves what really matters, what makes sense, what makes me happy, and how to, what are my basic needs and how do I fulfill my basic needs uh, in a sustainable, fair, transparent way and so on. And then I think more than ever we need dialogue, we need democracy, and uh, we need to implement, inspired by the Citizen Convention, type of new political institution based on more direct democracy, deliberative democracy, and to all question ourselves what somehow during the lockdown we had to do when you were locked down at home with your children and so on, you started to realize what really matters, that you need the food, you need time to care about the children, you need time to care about each other. We have the luxury, we are in this rich world where we Europeans and Australians, we've benefited from colonialism, from imperialism, you know, um, but in the other side, the, the poorer part of the world, I'm interviewing people in Bangladesh and uh, the front lines of climate change, and they don't have the time to be thinking of um, all these new ways of improving society. They want us to get our carbon footprint down. Australians have a carbon footprint of 25 tonnes of carbon per year. And I think the uh, global maximum should be something like two tonnes per person. And so we are already still colonising them by using up far more than, than our share. And uh, Australia is also exporting, you know, coal and gas, uh, making a huge profit. And I think people want to know, well, how can we degrow our emissions? How can we just pull them right down? And I, I know there's lots of those society changes that would be lovely, will be, will and probably are being modelled in certain places, that relocalization and, and so on and all the ideas you had. But um, people still vote in governments that give them jobs and growth. And so growth is the thing that prevails. And I want to, uh, you know, people say, oh, we can decouple growth from emissions. Yeah. And what we, uh, if we just phase out fossil fuels, we can go on, you know, with renewable energy. And I want to know just very succinctly, what is the answer to that? What is the response to that, that we can't go on growing, even if we just have everything renewable energy. We published uh, last year a report called Debunking Decoupling, showing the, how decoupling this myth that you can still have a strong economic growth in reducing your environmental impact is simply impossible. It never happened, so we scrutinized what's happened in the last years and so on, and it never happened. And it's unlikely to happen at such a level what we need 
to really face the challenges of uh, biodiversity loss, of climate change, of scarcity of all the resources we rely on. I spoke about the fossil energy, but it's also uh, in, uh, in the mobile phone I'm using now to talk to you, you will find a lot of different type of metals, uh, which are coming from a type of extractivism and so on. So decoupling is impossible, and we won't be able to go uh, from our four, five, six, seven planets environmental footprint uh, with only technical solution and so on. The second point, it's totally related what you started with, and I think it's very important to under, underline that, that one of the key pillars on which degrowth started was a radical critiques to development. And development as a, a culturally, uh, impa cultural imperialistic tool, which was used after the Second World War to keep on going on colonialism. There is no chance for Global South people or indigenous people to reappropriate their self-determination, to be free to make their life, which is sustainable, if the North doesn't stop with development, if the North doesn't degrow uh, their economies, which means to degrow, to decrease, uh, all the assistance, uh, what we get from these other countries. And when I speak about assistance, we are stealing their resources, we are interfering uh, in their political, institutional uh, political institutions to manipulate dictators or make war and so on, to extract resources and drive them to our uh, uh, countries. And also we are exploiting the people. And we are, the wars with colonization is uh, the rape of our imaginaries. So it's not only that uh, we stole their life, we destroyed their life, we stole their resources, we exploit them, but we also perverted their imaginary in bringing through advertisement and so on, a fairy tale, which is driving our civilization, which is driving the humanity to the wall. Vincent, I'd like to finish with um, a quotation I found that I think you will like. And it's from somebody who lives a completely different life from you and me and all the listeners maybe. And it's a woman in the Amazon. Her name is Alessandra Munduruku. And she received the Human Rights Award this year for her defense of the Amazon. This is a country, Amazonas is a place I have been years and years ago, and I, I love that place, and it's being destroyed, you know. And so she's defended her part of it, and she got this award. And this is what she said. She's actually a lawyer, and she works in defense, you know, in the defense of these people. But here's her, her words, and I think... It's about a kind of life that you might be working towards. She said, more and more, we are being squeezed very strongly, like by a big snake that's trying to choke us. She's talking about illegal miners and loggers and hydropower dam people, you know, coming there. And she said, I am not rich. The greatest wealth I have is the river without a dam, without mining. It means being free. It means not being bothered by any government or company. For me, progress is our good life. And just to finish, I'd like you to tell me what is your idea of good life in the sophisticated, complicated civilization that's very decadent now and about, you know, set on suicidal path, I think, our, our civilization. What, what is for you a good life? So I would say it's what I have the luxury as a privileged person who could uh, make a step aside and quit my bushy job and, and to uh, create with a, 
uh, groups of friends, a small ecosystem, and we can experiment uh, degrowth ways of life. It's uh, my privilege uh, a day when I wake up in the morning and I could do a lot of wonderful types of activity with wonderful people all day long, starting with gardening, uh, going on after with cooking, maybe in the afternoon with a type of research project when we can have more like intellectual discussion and uh, after maybe some uh, part about democracy and some deliberation about what do we, what do, we do together and uh, uh, ending up with a type of convivial time with a wonderful party with some culture meeting people from different uh, regions of the world with different languages and so on. And I would say that uh, to do this type of life, you don't need oil, you don't need industry, you don't need the type of machine we are using right now as a palliative to try to save the world and so on. But it's more about like uh, to be humble, to slow down and to uh, be able to uh, enjoy what you have around and, and to share it with the people you meet and, uh, it's what we call degrowth, so it's what we call uh, open, uh, open relocalization and conviviality and so on. And, and I think that the direction more and more people start to think about we should take and how can I get rid of my car and my bushy job to stop producing things which are harming uh, more and more people, but on the contrary, to slow down and to care about my, uh, my garden and my people around. Thank you very much, Vincent. So we've been thank talking. You, we've been talking to Vincent Liger. Aura, thank you very much for giving me your time. Have a lovely day and and evening in Budapest. Yeah, thanks a lot, Vivian. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. A big thanks to Rima Rattan, who interviewed Sonia, and to Andy Britt and Michaela, who helped with the podcast. It was a great thrill for me to talk to Amandine Rogman in Paris and Vincent Liget in Budapest. I'd been wanting to hear about the French Citizens' Assembly into climate because it's really set a huge example for the rest of the world. They each spoke to me for a full hour, and this is only an edited part of that conversation. Thank you also to Sonia Randawa, and I'd like you to contact her, as she said in the interview, if you are inspired by having more people's assemblies in Australia. It's a great way to reclaim some people power. And her organisation is called The Coalition of Everyone. The music you heard tonight was Sentinel by Kai Engel. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. Hello everyone, I'm Julian. I'm Chris and we're from Climate for Change. And we've got actions that you can take right now. This week, we've just released a new issue briefing on why your local government needs to declare a climate emergency. The last few months, Origin have restarted their exploratory fracking work up in the Northern Territory. Last week, listeners heard about the battle that's raging between communities, indigenous landowners, and the developers hoping to tap and extract gas in Australia's north. And now is a crucial time. Seedmob is a powerful presence at the grassroots level, building and organising community opposition to fracking with great success. Find out more about their campaigns and how you can take action by heading over to their website, seedmob.org.au, and help them tell gas companies to frack off.